Hello and thanks for streaming this episode from ACF Church. Our hope is that this word would encourage you to walk closer with God and with your local church. We hope you consider partnering in the work God's doing here by joining a life group, serving, and giving. If you'd like to give financially to the mission of ACF Church, you can do so safely on our website at acfak.org or by texting the amount to 907-341-4213. Now prepare your hearts to hear God's word. Hey guys, my name is Chad and I am on the lead team here at the church. Uh, So you're you're used to seeing the pastoral staff, but uh, we're giving them a week off because they did an awesome job uh, with the the Christmas Eve services and everything. So so Brian, several months ago, had asked me to... uh, to, if I would mind speaking this morning and give them some time off and everything. Uh, and I have a whole ton of stuff for you guys. So you guys don't get a Sunday off. Uh, I, I've got just a packed thing of, of just unpacking an entire uh, semester from my life group and the things that God's been showing me. But before that, let's, let's just take a second to pray uh, before we dive into it. Jesus, Thank you so much for this day. I thank you for the opportunity to be up here and share your word. I just ask that you would help me to do it um, humbly, that you would help me to, uh, to read your scripture correctly, that you would help me to articulate it well. I ask that you would uh, be with the crowd, that you would help them uh, to just open their eyes and ears to you, God, not to me, because it's not about anything that I say. Uh, help us to um, sharpen one another. Uh, and, and just look at your scripture in a new way this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks, guys. Um, so several months back, Stuart gave a sermon that, uh, that had three fantastic points that the best way to start reading the Bible is to read the Bible, read the Bible, uh, and read the Bible. So uh, we were, my life group, we were inspired by this. So we decided that we were going to um, take up uh, our own reading plan, that we were going to do a 90 days through the gospel program that's, uh, that's on the, the, the version Bible app. Uh, the guys at uh, the Bible Project, if you're familiar with any of their videos, they're phenomenal. And they did some videos leading you through the gospels. And it's just amazing the, the way that they point you through these webs that are going through uh, all four Gospels. I really appreciate that they, they show you how well written the Gospels are, because I kind of think that a lot of us think that just because they were written by fishermen, uh, you know, that maybe they're not that great, uh, but it's fantastic how well laid out the arguments are, and these guys do a really good job of showing you that. Uh, so that's what a lot of this comes from, was just my 90 days of reading through the Gospel. Uh, at Christmas time, we we focus on Jesus, and that's the right thing to do. We we look at the Gospels and we see what each one says about his birth, who he is. We start to look at prophecy, all the things that are answered out of Isaiah in particular. Uh, but in the ninety days leading up to Christmas, my head was somewhere completely different because as I read through the Gospels. Jesus was telling me a completely different story. He was asking me to put myself in the place of the people that are responding to Jesus. 
So as you read, you know, the Pharisees arguing with him, uh, God's asking me, what in my heart am I holding back? Am I being pharisaical about? And that sort of thing. So it was a, it was a different experience for me. And, and, you know, I grew up in the church and I've read through all of it several times. This was completely different. And I would really encourage you guys uh, to go into the new year with that program. It's, it's a chapter a day. Like if you don't have a steady rhythm of reading the Bible, it's a great way to get into that. It's one chapter. You just dive in and go. Um, for, for the message today, this is really for Christians in the church that I'm talking to. Uh, I'm, I'm going to label three groups of people that I see, uh, and they're people from the church. Because you've got to remember that Jesus is mainly speaking to uh, p- his people, God's people at that time, uh, the Jewish people in, in Israel. Uh, we don't see a lot of him kind of crossing into other cultures, so that's not primarily what I'm talking about today. Uh, when I introduce the first group, they're called the rejectors, and, and I don't mean that in a uh, you know, far out, they just don't believe at all in the gospel. I'm talking about people in the church, so keep that in mind. Try to, as I go through these, I'm going to be going through it fast. Like I said, I got like 30 minutes to, to break down three months of stuff, but as I go through it, try to see where your heart is as we, as we go through these three very broad categories. Uh, with that said, let's dive into Luke 11. And, oh, I'm sorry, let me give you a little bit of pretext on the, on the Pharisees. Um, this first group, uh, the rejectors, it's mainly the Pharisees and what are called the experts in the law, which just seem like Pharisee lawyers. I don't know what the deal is there, but they're, they're sort of adjacent to the Pharisees. And that's not a word we use in everyday life anymore. Pharisee is not something like you call your boss when he's being weird or something. You know, it just doesn't work that way. And it has just become synonymous in our culture with the bad guys in the New Testament. We use it as this kind of catch-all, as the people who wanted to kill Jesus. They're the Pharisees. They're evil. We all know that. But it's way more complicated than that. These are the guys that were actually teaching Israel about the coming Messiah. They knew the scriptures. As a matter of fact, they were opposed to a group called the Sadducees that were taking things way more metaphorically as they, as they taught the Torah. They taught that it wasn't a, a literal savior. There was no man that was the Messiah coming to Israel, that this was all a metaphor. Uh, whereas the Pharisees are the ones that are teaching, no, there is a Messiah coming. So they should have been the first to accept him. And that's an important thing to see uh, when we start talking about this group of people. So the rejectors, we'll dive in with Luke 11. Sorry, guys. 11.37. As he was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in, reclined at the table. And when the Pharisee saw this, he was amazed that he, being Jesus, did not first perform the ritual washing before dinner. But the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of greed and evil. Fools. We're going to skip down a couple of verses to 45 and see their response. One of the experts in the law answered him, Teacher, when you say these things, you insult us too. Then he said, Woe to you experts in the law. You load people with burdens that are hard to carry, yet you yourselves don't touch these burdens with one of your fingers. There's a lot of exchanges as you read through the Gospels of Jesus and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Uh, This one stood out to me because there's not the harshness you see later as the Pharisees really plot to kill Jesus. So here you see, I feel like it's a little more honest response from the Pharisees. They're offended by what Jesus is saying. 
Uh, first off, that should give us in the church a lot of pause, especially with the background of who the Pharisees are. Uh, so the people who had spent their lives literally studying God's word and trying to teach it to the people are the ones that Jesus is the most critical of here. Uh, he really does not get along with the Pharisees, and that's because they had built a system of theology to lift themselves up. A, theologi- a theologian and writer named A.W. Tozer is quoted with my favorite quote kind of regarding the subject. He said, the devil is a better theologian than any of us and is a devil still. That doesn't mean that theological study is wrong or bad. Uh, but as we saw in Jesus' critique, it's really important for us to analyze the why we are doing this. Why are we taking the Bible and ingesting it and trying to make uh, systems out of it? Are we doing it uh, that, that he would be lifted up or that we would be lifted up? And it's a super important thing to look at. So the Pharisees were not offended by Jesus' words. They were offended that he would dare criticize their theology, their carefully crafted theology they had put together over, over so many years. But Jesus is trying to show them that their crafted theology was intended to lift them up. It was made so that the, so that the Jewish people felt superior to to everyone else and that even in that like there was a top tier of of the jews the rabbis had honor everywhere they went and their theology was corrupt in that they had used a system that was intended to lift god up and to point to him they were using to lift themselves up and make themselves important and it's really scary to me that uh that this group is the group that goes from just being offended by Jesus to epically rejecting him in such an epic fashion that it fulfills prophecy that they ironically knew and taught to everyone else. So you, you have to look at the blinders that are put on in, in this group of faith. So I think the question that comes out of this group is, how ready to listen to Jesus are you? Are you allowing him to change ideas that you've held since childhood, no matter what background you come from? Are you willing to read the Bible and try to clearly see what it's telling you, not shore up your own biases with it? With that, let's move to the second group. This group I call the hopeful skeptics. So these are people that I feel represent the majority of us, a lot of the time. Uh, they have hope in Jesus, and they're looking to Jesus, uh, you know, f- to, to buoy them up and, and find salvation and things like that, but they're still skeptical about it. There's doubt that's not really allowing them to go as deep as they might should. There are a lot of examples of this in the Bible as well, uh, but these two really spoke the loudest to me. The first one is a dad in Mark 9, verse 17. Out of the crowd, one man answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you. He has a spirit that makes him unable to speak. Wherever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams at the mouth, grinds his teeth, and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to drive it out, but they couldn't. He replied to them, You unbelieving generation, how long will I be with you? How long will I put up with you? Bring him to me. And jump down to verse 21. How long has this been happening to him? Jesus asked the father. From childhood, he said. And many times it has thrown him into fire or water to destroy him. 
But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Then Jesus said to him, if you can, everything is possible to the one who believes. Immediately, the father of the boy cried out, I do believe, help my unbelief. How often do we believe that Jesus can, but doubt if he will do it for us? Uh, I know I'm as guilty as anyone in this room of knowing what he has done for friends and family and, and people in the church that I've known over the years. I've heard the testimony, and I know the things that Jesus can do in people's lives, but I don't necessarily believe he'll do it in my life. Does that make sense? We we often think that we're the exception, that maybe we're not worthy, that, that we're not fulfilling, uh, you know, the role that we're supposed to fulfill, and, and maybe we aren't using our gifts like we're supposed to use them. Oh, man, I forgot that, uh, you know, I haven't prayed in three days or opened my Bible in a week. I haven't been to church in two weeks. I can't ask Jesus for anything. And we get into this rut, and that's completely, that's called dogma. And that is not of Jesus, and it's not of, of his word, and we need to weed that out of our thought process, because we never see Jesus act like this in the Gospels. Every time you see Jesus uh, confront someone, he meets them exactly where they are, and he's asking them to move forward. I, I haven't seen any verse where Jesus talks to some guy who's blind, and he goes, oh man, well, you know, if your prayer life was a little better, I probably could help you, but I don't know what to do about it right now, so sorry, see ya. Like that, I just haven't seen that. So, so we need to change the way that we're thinking about this. Uh, I, I really believe that the reason that most of us react in this way is because it, it, deep inside we're worried, what if he says no? What will that do to my faith? If I ask Jesus for this and, and nothing happens, you know, where's my faith going to be? Am I, and so we just, you know, it's not rejection like with the Pharisees. It's this kind of more insidious thing, to be honest with you. We just protect our little bit of faith that we feel we have. We go, well, I'm not going to ask for that because, you know, I don't really need it that bad. There, there are other people that are suffering worse than I am that are more deserving uh, because we're scared that if, if that doesn't happen, that that little bit of faith that we're trying to hold on to will get crushed. And I'm here to tell you that that's hurting your faith more than you realize. Uh, and, and we really need to change our hearts and minds on this and the way that we see it. Uh, it's just a sidetrack. Did you know that the Greek word metanoia that is translated most of the time as repentance or to repent in the New Testament, uh, it, we have it meaning this thing of moving away from sin, of, of stopping doing something that is wrong and moving towards what is right. And that's, there's truth in that. But what it literally means when you translate it is to change your mind. So when we're thinking about this, this stuff in faith, what, what would happen if you just took Jesus at his word and repented of this and changed your mind? What if instead of thinking about protecting that little bit of faith and I'm just going to, you know, I don't, I don't know that Jesus is going to act on this, so I'm scared to ask. Uh, what if you gave Jesus the opportunity to show you how faithful he is? And just trust in that. So, uh, the other example that I would like to look at uh, in the hel- in the the hopeful skeptic 
is probably my favorite skeptic, even though he's got like all the three lines in the Bible. I love this guy, a rabbi named Nicodemus. As we jump into John 3, uh, verses 1 and 2, there was a man from the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to him at night and said, Rabbi, we know you have come from God as a teacher, for no one could perform these signs you do unless God were with him. So far, so good, right? This is the hopeful part. He sounds pretty awesome. So Nicodemus, uh, there's a whole lot to unpack in this first section, though. I know it's only two sentences, but we see that Nicodemus came to Jesus at night. Uh, which is kind of telling. He, d- he went alone. He didn't want any of his rabbi buddies or the, the guys at the synagogue to know anything about this. He shows up to talk to Jesus at night. To give Nicodemus a little bit of credit, this was a, a pretty serious charge if you were, uh, were caught kind of following Jesus at this point. You could be banned from your synagogue, which, I mean, it would, it would be bad if we kicked you out of church today, but it would pale in comparison to to the first century being kicked out of your synagogue. If you were banned from your synagogue, you couldn't do business with anyone you knew. It was your entire community, basically, and you couldn't do business with them. Uh, They were your friends that you couldn't call for help anymore. You know, nobody's watching your kids. All that stuff is just gone. All of your friendships, uh, everything outside of your immediate family might just be wiped off the table, and this was a prominent individual. So he, to give him a little bit of credit, like he is stepping out on a limb to go see Jesus. And, and to double down, he's brave enough to say, uh, Jesus, I understand that you're clearly sent from God. There aren't a whole lot of other Pharisees doing this in, in the scriptures. So, so I do see hope in him. But the problem is, is just like the rest of his Pharisees' buddies, he has built up this system that he thinks he knows how to get to the kingdom of God. So Jesus skips everything I just told you about, you know, him coming at night. He doesn't point that out. He doesn't, you know, go, Nicodemus, come on, man. Like, do you even really try to believe? You didn't even come when, you know, we were all at the temple earlier today. Where where were you at then? There's none of that. He doesn't even comment on that Nicodemus does say you're sent from God. He doesn't say, yeah, man, you got it right. Thanks. Keep up the good work. There's, he just jumps straight to this man's heart. Like Jesus does so many times, he just cuts through what Nicodemus thinks he knows and goes to, to a completely different place to show Nicodemus where he was wrong and, and what he has to adjust. So Jesus re- responds in John 3, uh, verse 3. Jesus replied, I assure you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. But how can anyone be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked him. How can he enter his mother's womb a second time and be born? So clearly, not the response Nicodemus is looking for. And he's not really able to process it either. Uh, And I believe that's probably because he thought he knew the answer. Because the Pharisees at the time are are preaching that adherence to the law, that, that you have to follow the commandments, that will win favor for you with God. So he came in the room thinking he knew the answers, that Jesus was going to give him a pat on the back, doing good job, buddy, and send him right back out. And that's not at all what Jesus does. He questions his entire system of belief. Um, Some of you guys don't know me really well, but uh, let me fill you in. I kind of resonate with Nicodemus on this a little bit. My wife, Emily, will tell you that I'm a fluent speaker of sarcasm uh, and that um, I like to use that language even when there's no one else in the room that's a native speaker. 
Uh, and that's about like 99.997% of, uh, of disagreements that happen at the Smith household. So, so I get where Nicodemus is coming from, which is why I can tell you that this is just a symptom of, of the bigger problem. Nicodemus is masking his lack of faith with sarcasm. Instead of asking Jesus, what do you mean? Like, I, I, I don't follow. What's going on here? He goes straight for, you got to be kidding me. Like, this is, you can't be born again. This is ridiculous. And, and he's just doing nothing but masking his own lack of faith. Uh, we don't get to read, we're not going to read, I'm sorry, the rest of it, because Jesus really lays into this guy for quite a long period of time, and, and I've only got like 20 more minutes that I can talk to you, so I don't have time to do all of it, but um, Nicodemus only talks one more time in this very long conversation, and maybe I'm reading into it, I don't know, but it seems to me he's a lot more humble the second time he, he, he says anything to Christ. And I kind of see a little bit of fear in that. I think that he's beginning to realize that Jesus is, is questioning his whole life's work at this point. His career is being questioned. Everything that he's believed in is being questioned by this man that, he ju- that Nicodemus just said, it's clear by the things you're doing, we know you're from God. So he's got a lot to kind of mull over. And we don't get to see the end of Nicodemus's story, which is really interesting to me. There's no resolution here. Uh, we see Nicodemus be sarcastic. Jesus kind of gets on to him a little bit. He comes back and, and questions a little more, a little more humbly. And then Jesus lays into him for quite a long paragraph. And that's the end of the story. We don't see what happens to Nicodemus. And to be honest with you, I find hope in that. I know that's a weird thing to say, but Nicodemus is human to me in this moment. Because it's really easy for us to look at a lot of the other stories with Jesus. If I was blind and a man came and healed me and then he said, I'm Jesus the Messiah, I just healed you. I'm pretty sure I would respond pretty well to that immediately, like most people in the Bible do. But that's not what we see in everyday life. Uh, that doesn't happen a lot uh, to, to you know, all of you in the room here. What I do see in everyday life a lot more is doubting and questioning, and wondering what God's trying to move in, in, in our lives. And so when I see Nicodemus, I see, you know, a lot of you guys that are sitting out there, I see myself a lot of the time just wondering, you know, am I getting it? That sort of thing. So it's, it's hopeful to me, and it's human to me that we don't see the end of the story. It means that, that we have hope. Nicodemus left wrestling, and I like to think that he, he kind of completed that journey and believed in Jesus. He took a pretty brave step to begin with to go and talk to him. So I want to think that he was receptive to what, what Jesus is saying there, uh, but we just don't know. So, so there is hope for me and you in that. But let's keep moving to the third group. This group I just call the faithful. It's pretty self-explanatory. These are the people that get it. Like, this is the group that I think a lot of us look at and just sort of struggle with a little bit that it's, a, it's an us-them. Like, we're kind of normal people, and we're struggling a little bit with faith, but we're trying. We're hopeful skeptics. Uh, but these people over here, oh, man, they're crushing it. And they're this weird, uh, you know, spiritually elite people that are, are blessed, and we don't really understand it. And so I think there's a tendency there to, to kind of think that maybe— Maybe we're not quite there yet, or it just takes, you know, way more time or something like that. And we give ourselves excuses for not being faithful in that way. Uh, But I want to read you two stories that are kind of 
flip sides of the coin of, of like truly faithful people, and we'll kind of go from there. So let's start in Luke 2, uh, 25. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, looking forward to Israel's consolation, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he saw the Lord's Messiah. Guided by the Spirit, he entered the temple complex. When the parents brought the child Jesus to perform for him what was customary under the law, Simeon took him up in his arms, praised God, and said, Now, Master, you can dismiss your slave in peace as you promised, for my eyes have seen your salvation. And let's skip down a few verses to verse 36. And there's somebody else who who just gets it. There was also a prophetess, Anna, daughter of Phanel, of the tribe of Asher. She was well along in years, having lived with her husband seven years after their marriage, and was a widow for 84 years. She did not leave the temple complex, serving God night and day with fasting and prayers. At that very moment, she came up and began to thank God and speak about him, the him there is actually Jesus, to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. So I don't see anybody else in the New Testament that just gets it like these two. This is child Jesus. He's done no miracles uh, outside of maybe, uh, you know, the shepherds who were at his birth kind of thing. I don't think there's anybody else that we see this kind of faith in. Uh, And I don't know where you guys are from, but I'm originally from Georgia. I know I don't have much of the accent anymore. Uh, But uh, I knew a lot of these people in the Bible Belt just really died in the wool, heavy, faithful people uh, that had that uncanny knack to just hear the Spirit and move with it and, and just immediately be in agreement and seem almost reflexive, just how quickly they picked up the ball and ran with it when, when the Spirit was moving. And I want to be always moving into that crowd. Ever since I was a kid, I, you can look at the kind of group one, group one and group two people uh, and, and you know, hopeful skeptic, and you go, man, I'd, I'd like to get rid of a little bit of the skepticism and move into this faithful crowd. Uh, and, and then the Nicodemus, you know, sarcasm part of me kicks in, and I just kind of go, wow, like, this just seems like this crazy magical characteristic, and I don't know how... Uh, to, to incorporate that into my own walk. Uh, and ironically, just like Nicodemus, I didn't have to go a whole lot farther before I got reprimanded on this and taught just how simple faith can be. Uh, it's not really for the spiritual elite that I'm kind of telling myself in, uh, but the guy that Jesus says exemplifies faith, most of his followers probably hated Uh, and would have thought were their enemy. Let's read in Luke 7, verse 6. Jesus went with them, and when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to tell him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, since I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. That is why I didn't even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, and my servant will be cured. For I too am a man placed under authority, having soldiers under my command. I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another one, come, and he comes, and to my slave, do this, and he does it. Jesus heard this and was amazed at him, and turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found so great a faith in all of Israel. So a soldier from the Roman Empire 
is the guy that explains faith, simple faith, better than anyone else we see in the Gospels, in my opinion. He literally just breaks it down to, I know if you say you'll do it, that it will happen. So maybe, you know, where you're at right now and where I'm at right now, we don't have the eloquence of Simeon, and we don't have this kind of deep and and uh, crazy faith that just shows itself in amazing ways. But I think we can start by believing like the centurion did, that if Jesus says yes, it will be accomplished. I know that doesn't sound like the exciting faith that moves mountains that we talk about sometimes, uh, but look how Jesus responds to this guy. I think that accolade's pretty good. I would be super excited to hear Jesus respond to me that way. And it's over something so simple. But I do need to take a minute to point out that simple does not mean easy, necessarily. So uh, while I've been uh, kind of building this whole thing up for the last couple of months, I've known that I was going to teach this morning for a while. And while I've been studying on this and trying to weed out which scripture I wanted to use, the centurion was, was one of the first ones that I was firmly, firmly fixed on. And I should have known that after God had given me this little bit that he was going to follow up with some examples in my own life. Uh, So that turned out pretty awesome on Christmas Eve just the other day. I'm driving into work from a half day and my truck starts dying and uh, pull, you know, coast over to the side of the road. The truck, by the way, that has been flawless since I got it uh, and now is just, I'm sitting on the side of the road kind of wondering what's going to happen next. Start it back up couple more times, you know, a couple more dump miles down the road and it kills out on me. And uh, now I'm getting pretty worried. The, the stress of being in traffic uh, with a car that's not working. I don't know if you've ever been there. It's not a whole lot of fun. Uh, and now I'm on the side of the road going, like, how many thousands of dollars is this about to cost my family? Uh, it's during the holidays. I'm going to pay through the nose to get it towed anywhere. What am I going to do? And I'm getting frustrated And, of course, the first thing that comes to me is, you were going to teach this about the centurion. I'm like, that's awesome. Uh, So so I can tell you firsthand, it wasn't terribly easy to just set aside any worries and to, to say, Jesus, I know anything that you decide to do in this, it will be accomplished. I'm just going to trust you. But, man, after I took that five seconds to just say that, I don't know how to describe to you the peace that came over me and the calm that I had in that moment. And it it really didn't matter that much anymore. Uh, As of right now, my week's been crazy enough that the situation's still not resolved. I still don't know if I have like a, you know, $10,000 piece of junk laying in my friend's yard or or if I'm going to get it fixed. But I'm not, I have a peace about it. I won't say I'm not worried about it, but I, I have... Uh, peace in that, and I'm not stressed out about it. So while it's simple to say that, that that's faith, it's not always easy. But I can tell you that it's totally worth it. So uh, I know that I told you guys that there were only three groups, but I'm kind of sneaking something in because I think that this is super cool uh, and applies to all groups, uh, no matter where you're at. This, I believe, is key to, to how we should Uh, to follow Jesus. But first, I want to do a really quick side trail on just studying the Bible. And this will all make sense in a minute, I promise. Uh, But we're going to start with something just called descriptive versus prescriptive reading. 
as you go through scripture, uh, we all do this kind of naturally, but once you understand the terminology, it gives you language and voice for it, and it makes it easier to do. Uh, and, and I'm all about that kind of stuff. I like anything that helps me understand God's word better. So uh, the idea of descriptive versus prescriptive scripture, uh, I'm going to show you in the use of scripture, actually. So we're going to start with Matthew 21, verse 19. Seeing a lone fig tree by the road, he went up to it and found nothing on it except leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And at once the fig tree withered. I put this pretty firmly in the descriptive category. This is describing an event that Jesus was part of. Uh, can you imagine if we took this as prescriptive of what we were supposed to do? I immediately had an image of us at Impact Eagle River, those of you who go and like clean up people's yards, just getting mad at a tree that didn't have a stupid apple tree, no, no fruit for me, and just curse it and kill it right there. And that's a really funny uh, uh, illustration to me, but I don't know why I laughed at that so hard. But that is clearly a descriptive category. Uh, but I would like to look at something that's maybe prescriptive, and I think this is the easiest one to reference. On the other hand, there's Jesus in Matthew 6 teaching us how to pray. I think we all know this verse, but I'm going to read it anyways, Matthew 6, 9. Therefore, you should pray like this, our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. When Jesus prays what we now call the Lord's Prayer, I think everybody in here would agree that that's a prescriptive verse. He's telling us what we should do moving forward. So just to break it down really simply, descriptive is, is describing something that happened in a historical sense. And prescriptive is describing how we should act moving forward and how we should respond to Christ. Now, with that in mind, I want to read some verses about my, my special fourth group here that I think we all should be part of as Christians. Uh, and I call them the reachers. Mark 5, verse 25. A woman suffering from bleeding for 12 years had endured much under many doctors she had spent everything she had and was not helped at all. On the contrary, she became worse. Having heard about Jesus, she came behind him in the crowd and touched his robe. For she said, if I can just touch his robes, I will be made well. And more people had the, a similar idea as well. In Matthew 14, verse 35, we read, When the men of that place recognized him, they alerted the whole vicinity and brought him to all who were sick. They were begging him that they might only touch the tassel of his robe. Also in Mark 6, verse 56. Wherever he would go into villages, towns, or the country, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and begged him that they might just touch the tassel of his robe. There are more people like this. Uh, they, they recognized that they needed healing and believed just enough to go sit in Jesus' way that they might just touch his dusty, dirty robe as he traveled the country. I really believe that we usually read this scripture, these passages, as descriptive, and we just kind of skim over them as something cool that Jesus did. 
but I really also want to tell you that I think now that it's prescriptive. I think that this is in the Bible to show us how at the heart of things we should respond knowing that the Messiah has come for us. These people don't overcomplicate it. Their, their problem and their faith are both simple. They understand that they have an immediate need and they believe just enough to go to Jesus to fix it. But let's finish up uh, with, with these people's stories. Uh, the second part of Matthew 14, 36, B, I guess. And as many people, and as many touched it, his robe, were made perfectly well. And then in Mark six fifty six, and they were healed, even healed perfectly. Both ends similarly. Everyone who reached out to Jesus was healed. That's pretty awesome. But not just healed, they were perfectly healed. Most commentary and theology that you'll read about this agrees that perfectly healed is in line with the other times that Jesus heals individuals one-on-one. And a lot of the time he even heals their sin first and then says, oh yeah, well also that blindness kind of stinks, so I'll heal that too. Uh, so so um, the, the perfectly healed, if you just imagine for a second what that implies, that people that just showed up and believed just enough that he would heal them physically and he reached out and touched his robe, that they were healed even of their sins. Just that little bit of reaching for an immediate need can lead to restoration with your God. That is amazing to me. And I want to take that thought just kind of one step further. We see that a lot of these people were brought to Jesus. And I'm sure some of them had asked for it. I'm betting not every single one of them. If we're honest, I bet there were a lot of people that went, nope, that guy's a, a charlatan. I don't want anything to do with it. And his friends were like, too bad, we're carrying you over there anyways. And, uh, and everyone was healed. It doesn't say that everyone uh, that asked to be brought there was healed. It said everyone that touched his robes were healed. So I'm not implying or saying in that that your faith can heal your mom that you've been praying for or your son that doesn't want anything to do with Jesus anymore, or that friend you have that just hates the gospel every time you bring it up. That's not what I'm saying, but what I am saying is if this verse is prescriptive to what we should be doing, I think we have to ask ourselves, what are you doing? Where are you trying to bring that friend just to touch Jesus' robe to get, to, to get them some healing and get that started? So let's wrap up the last story, the woman who had been bleeding. Mark 5, 34. Daughter, he said to her, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be free from your affliction. I can't help but think at how cool a story this lady has. She's the one of all these people in these crowds that gets recognized. Her faith earned her a spot in God's word because she believed simply that if she reached out and touched his robe, that she would be healed. And then Jesus speaks to her. She wasn't even trying to be noticed. She believed that Jesus' power was so much if she could just be near him and and touch his garment, he didn't even have to see her and she was going to be healed. 
But he turns around and talks to her. He even asks his disciple. He has to find her for a minute because it's a crowd of people. And he turns around and he's like, hey, guys, where's this lady? And, uh, and they're going, uh, there's like 10,000 people here. What do you want us to do? Uh, and, and they find her and Jesus addresses her to tell her that she's free from affliction now. So as we get ready for New Year's, I really want to encourage you guys again to read through the Gospels. I think that the, the Bible Project videos are great, but if you don't want to do it that way, a chapter a day takes you 90 days, and you'll walk through the four Gospels searching for Jesus. But I also just want to challenge you to pray that Jesus would reveal to you as you read, where in your life are you being a Pharisee? Where are you rejecting a truth that Jesus is trying to, to show you right now? Where are you Nicodemus? Where are you the hopeful skeptic? Where you just won't take that step of faith yet. Where you really believe that Jesus can help you and you, you have hope in that, but you're just not acting on it yet. Ask that he would show you that. But also ask, where, ask him to show you where you've been, Simeon, Anna, or the centurion. Have him show you where he is proud of you and you've been successful in faith, uh, that you have something to stand on later and, and, and build your relationship with him. I think that those things are equally important because when we read Simeon and Anna's story, they weren't newbies to the church. These weren't people that just one day had this amazing faith. Uh, go back and reread those passages real quick. Simeon had, had been in the temple most of his life. And it says that Anna had been there since being widowed 84 years ago. They had been night and day building their relationship with God. And I think they started in these simple ways. So just take a little bit of comfort and hope in that. But I guess last, I really want to challenge you as we go into this new year to take steps to be one of the people in the crowd just reaching for Jesus. It's just that simple. Just believe that, that you can be healed. That's an important part of it that we skip over sometimes. You have to believe that you can find healing, that there is healing from Jesus, and show up and put a hand out and, and try to reach a little bit. Uh, and lastly, just bring somebody else with you there. How, how can you change someone's life better than helping them find healing, just reaching for Jesus. With that, uh, let's close in prayer today. Jesus, thank you so much for all the many blessings you give us, God. I thank you for your word. I, again, just ask that you would help us to decipher it well and to, to lean into you looking for answers, God. Uh, help us to be in community searching for you, God. Help us to uh, read the Bible with other people and bounce our ideas off of them and, and get excited, put excitement in our heart uh, as we ask our friends, man, I don't, I don't understand this. What are you picking up here? What can we do? Um, Jesus, just sh give us answers in our heart and help us to uh, sharpen one another with those. Help us not to just be in a dark corner somewhere looking for you, but uh, with your people, God. I thank you uh, for the opportunity just to open your word this morning. I ask that you would uh, help us all as we search through it and, and continue to try to find you. Help us not build our theology that it would 
lift us up, but that it would lift you up, God. Help us to always be um, pointing toward love, not towards ourselves. Uh, I thank you for this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.